if you're on LinkedIn long enough, you've seen the cartoon, probably of a sales connection friend of yours, of a couple of cavemen trying to drag a cart of some sort. Caveman cart, I know. Don't. It's a cartoon. Give me a break. And I didn't write it. I didn't draw it. Not my fault. Point your anachronisms to someone else. Take them to someone who cares. And <laughs> what a way to start. And the cart has square wheels. And there's the sales caveman. Uh, and, and I'm trying to envision. I'm trying to remember. Does the sales caveman has a tie? Probably. Um, and go with a round wheel. And the people with the square wheels say, no, no, we don't have time for salesmen. We, we, we're busy pushing this cart. And of course, the joke is, of course, oh, if they would only take the moment and listen to the wonderful, kind salesperson <laughs> who, is, who has the solution. And I get both sides of that thing so hard. I get it. I feel like, as the kids say, it makes me feel a certain way. Um, I get both sides of that. And, and honestly, you can just replace employer branding and recruiters and it's the same thing recruiters are desperate to do their jobs and want to achieve their goals and hire the people and there's employer brand with the round wheel saying uh folks uh, this might be better and the recruiters like no 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 we're busy posting and praying and doing this thing we gotta we gotta post harder we're gonna pray harder i guess i don't know and that's you know painting with a big broad brush but what do you want it's a podcast um, that's what we're going to talk about. Recruiters and why recruiters are desperate for employer branding. They just don't know it. And frankly, candidates are too. We'll get there too. So that's what we're going to talk about when we get back. Hey, everybody. James Ellis here. It's the Talent Cast. It's season two. We're doing Talent Chooses You as an audiobook 2.0, the sequel. Uh, it returns. It came from the book. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's We're just redoing the whole book as an audiobook for free for you as the podcast. And that's all being brought to you by RecruitmentMarketing.com, the community for recruitment marketing professionals. They sponsored this whole season. So thanks to them. Um if this is if your employer brand is your thing and but if you by now you're not subscribed to my newsletter honestly where are you what how when why who's no no i'm just i'm running out of w words just sign up to my newsletter it's employerbrand.news it's free it is hopefully useful it's got links to lots of articles and ways to get better that i didn't write and little bit things of that i do write uh, it's not about me. It's just about how to get everybody, you know, thinking better and thinking smarter and bringing more perspectives to the world and coming up with a point of view and helping you kind of think through your problems. So that's what that is. Go to employerbrand.news and sign up for that. It's a Substack. It shows up every Monday. No salesman will call. All right, let's get into it. So this section is called Why Recruiters Are Desperate for your for You to Invest in Employer Branding. Now, I think that's funny because I'm asking employer branding to invest in employer branding, which, yeah weird your company needs to invest in employer branding but you are the standard bearer for that thing right okay so let's just you know i'm adjusting the title as i go this is the fun part about doing it as a 2.0 i get to adjust and go oh yeah that, that may not have been the most clear thing i ever wrote uh and i've by the way just full you know uh, uh just so you know i've run across a couple paragraphs here that i've written and gone Okay, I've had to read them four times out loud and go, wait, what the heck did I mean? Or where was the, yeah. So this has been, um, hum not humiliating, a humbling experience. How about that? We'll go with humbling. So let's get into it. We've come to terms with the fact that the standard means of recruiting is just flawed, right? We spent the last five, six, seven episodes talking about that. 
The recruiter posts a job, they post it far and wide, they try to collect 50 to 200 applications from people who are at some level willing to engage around a poorly described role in a LinkedIn, Indeed, job board, website place for a company that they may or may not know much about. And even if they know the brand name, they probably don't know much of what it's like to work inside the company. And before you quibble, I'm talking statistically, which means, yes, for the five people who know your company in and out and did the good research, you're talking about 95% who did not, who just hit the button and said, yeah, sure, I'll apply. They didn't make me retype my resume every single time. So sure, here's here's my application. Okay. So from there, the recruiter skims the resumes, sorting out and throwing out as many as they can, kind of sorting the wheat from the chaff, running phone screens on dozens of them just to find three or five people who are worth bringing in for an interview, people who won't inter, you know embarrass them in front of the hiring manager. The interview gets done by the hiring manager who has a loose or even tenuous interaction or, or collaboration with the recruiter, right? They, they meet once for an intake and maybe they have a couple of touch bases along the way. Very often, it's that's the full extent of that relationship. And despite not knowing what the job market looks like, the hiring manager may say, I need better candidates and, and that, we don't want to pay that much or you know, we want to push the comp up or we want to push the comp down or they just make some demands. They're not the experts in that space. You know what they're the experts in? Their day job. Recruiters are the experts in this space. We're getting ahead ourselves. The candidate gets the tiniest trickle of information about the job or the company from overworked recruiters and hiring managers and recruiting coordinators. Uh, they, they're desperate. They look around for whatever scraps of information they can glean about what it's like to work there. And they're asked to make a life-altering decision without much information. And we wonder, why is this broken? It is. It just is. And again, I've said it before. No one in this process likes this process. I wouldn't even go so far as to call it a comfortable compromise. I don't even think it's that good. I think it's a broken, flawed, messed up system that we've all kind of, each of us, hiring managers, recruiters, you know, candidates, whatever, we've all held our nose because we thought there was nothing better. And it means that right now, recruiting feels a lot like begging and baiting strangers to trade their attention and time for a chance to talk to another unrelated stranger to potentially, maybe, I hope, win a job which may or may not make their life better. That's brutal. And recruiters do love to argue that point. They love to tell me how I'm wrong. But You know, from their perspective, they have a point, but from the candidate's point of view, that idea of begging and baiting strangers to trade attention for time, to talk to somebody else who doesn't really engage with the process, to potentially win a job they may or may not make their life better, that's a 100% true statement from the candidate's point of view. Neither the candidate nor the recruiter nor the hiring manager is able to make good decisions or smart decisions because nobody in this process has enough information. The recruiter doesn't know enough about the job itself. The hiring manager doesn't know about the market, you know, the talent market. The candidate doesn't know about the job and the company. Everybody's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a blind man situation. Every, you know, it's the joke to a, to a, in the land of the blind, the one end, one-eyed man is king or one-eyed person is king. Well, there's nobody with even one eye in this situation. 
We're all blind. We're all so blindly focused on what's going on. We none of us have enough information to if if you took this process and associated with any other buying process, buying a home, buying a car, it would be like saying I'm going to buy a car after only being told what the car looks like by someone who doesn't drive. And then that person brings you to someone who is an engineer who makes the car and asking questions there and deciding, do you wanna buy this car or not? It makes no sense. The only people in this process who like the process are vendors who get to sell tech and support to a broken system to make it, I don't know, marginally less broken. And while the tools and technology look to make this process slightly faster or slightly smoother, pretending that that's somehow better, they support the underlying broken process. They are papering over the situation. They're calling it fixed when all they've done is kind of painted over it. And that way they only have a limited impact. I mean, I don't put a spoiler in racing tires on a Camry and call it, you know, the race car. I mean, maybe it makes it go a little faster, but it's not gonna compete with a Formula One, Formula One racer. There's no way. You just can't paper over these things and call them fixed. Now, if you get a good recruiter a little drunk, even they will admit that it's a rigged game that absolutely no one likes. No one likes this process. It puts them in a situation where they're the unwitting bad guy making neither the candidate nor the customer happy. And yet, here we are. This is what we think of as the standard recruiting process. So I'm going to ask you something. If, if you had a blank sheet of paper, how would you invent the process? Would it look anything like this would it? no of course not it would look nothing like this and you could come up with 20 different ways it could be different and many of them will be better but none of them would look like this because this is insanity if you reinvented the process today would you make it about the ats and the job posting would that be the most central thing about what's going on of course not because those are facilitating processes and facilitating tools in the core of recruiting, which is called building relationships. Let me say that again. Recruiting is about building relationships. There's other factors that go into it, but first and at its core, it's beating living heart of recruiting is building relationships. There isn't a recruiter alive who enjoys working with their ATS. They do it because the business told them they had to. That is the only way to process candidates at scale, which relationships and scale are two words that do not go together very well, sometimes tenuously at best, but really generally they do not. And all this is only true if you've always processed blind strangers and not trusting any of the information in the application, which by the way, is how most companies operate. They look at that resume and go, this is mostly lies. I don't believe this. Let's bring them in and question them like we suspect that they've stole a diamond and uh, see if, they're, if any of this holds up. Recruiters, when they're at their best, are focused on building relationships. Now, this is, when I say building relationships, I mean in both directions. I mean building relationships with the hiring managers to better understand the role, to better understand what success looks like, to help them plan for their next hire. Uh, Katrina Kimmett has so many great questions. She asks at a strategy onboarding meeting or an intake meeting, which I don't like the word intake meeting. It makes every recruiter a order taker, which they aren't, they shouldn't be. But she has great questions. My, my favorite one, and I'm, I'm quoting her and I'm, you know, I'm stealing and also you know citing, so hopefully that's cool is uh, what did you do to prepare, what should someone have done? The recruiter asked the hiring manager, what should someone have done to prepare them for this role? 
I think that is so good at kind of unpacking all the bullshit of what degree do they need to have had? How many years of experience should they have had? These are all arbitrary bullshit ideas that we jam pack and we're job posting where they don't belong even a little bit. Uh, unless this, like, here's my thing on, on uh, college education. If a college education was required, there is no place in which a college education by itself requires you, allows you to do anything. If it's a job that requires a college education, it's a job that requires a certification. And that certification requires a college education. Like, for example, I'm not going to hire a liar, a lawyer, uh, Freudian slip there. I'm not going to hire a lawyer who doesn't have a college degree. Why? Because they don't have a license to practice law because they didn't pass the bar because they didn't go to law school because they didn't go to college. The college degree has no bearing in this whatsoever. If they have a license to practice law, they've got all the other requirements. Anyway, tiny little soapbox moving off them. So not only should recruiters be focused on building those relationships, the hiring managers to figure out what the potential applicants need to have done and what they should expect and what they should want beyond what they put in a resume. They should also be building relationships with the candidates, right? That's it's a two-sided situation. You're building relationships on both sides. They want to know what the candidate cares about, what makes them tick, what motivates them, what are they looking for in the next role? I got a recruiter friend, hey Blake, who loves to ask the question, what's what are you dreaming about? Because to him, recruiting is about dreaming together. That's what I'm talking about when I mean relationship building. I mean, finding a way as a recruiter, your job is to help them, help the candidate, help their hiring manager. And you do that by building relationships. It's not about, I don't know, sticking a recruiter on a treadmill and demanding they get more applicants and yelling at them until they go nowhere. It's about building relationships. And when recruiters figure out and really embrace, truly, truly, truly embrace, not just say it, not just pay it lip service, but truly embrace the idea that employer brand is all about helping them build relationships and their job is all about building relationships, that's the game. Recruiters should love employer brand because it moves them away from being an order taker and being subservient to the hiring manager's whims. And let's be fair, some of these things are whims. Right, then turning them into consultative talent experts, the place the recruiter should be. It f allows them to think in terms of relationships, not in terms of taking orders. Employer brand at its core is all about helping the recruiters build those relationships and elevating themselves. But what we've turned employer brand into is to here's a website, here's a social tag, post this everywhere. Hey, I'm done your employer branding for you. Did that help you build a relationship? Uh, not really, but that's where employer brand really makes a difference with recruiters. It helps them build relationships and that's what makes recruiters far more successful. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast, Banking Transform where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transform, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube.
why candidates and prospects need you. They're not just begging you. They need you to invest in employer branding. They're begging you. They're desperate for you to do these things. Employer branding isn't just something that the business and recruiters should see value in. It's something that your candidates, especially those with higher levels of talent, want you to invest in. They need you to invest in. They're desperate for it. Here is my little sidebar on this, and, and I'm, I'm coming to the realization that this is really important stuff. The reason I love employer branding, I've made many statements as to why I love employer branding, and they're all valid. I'm not saying I was lying. I'm saying beyond the ability to kind of change a piece of marketing, beyond the ability to engage with new audiences, what I think is most important, and the reason I'm in love with employer branding is because I am deeply, deeply selfish. I have been accused, rightly and wrongly, of being a job hopper. And the trick with looking for a job, when you do it enough, is you realize you're walking in blind. You really embrace this idea of you're walking in blind. I want everyone, every company, everywhere to embrace employer branding so that I, me, James Ellis, not the royal me, not the podcastian we, the me, the person that is sitting in this stupid chair, the me is so desperate to understand what the hell is this company about? What is this job all about? Because I know there's a statistical chance that one day I might need to look for another job. And I'm tired of walking in blind. And I'm tired of trying to figure out how to Jedi mind trick recruiters and hiring managers to, to revealing what the real culture of a company is. I'm tired of that. And I suspect that I am not the only one. I suspect that most candidates are so exhausted by this process, we've beaten them up with lack of information that they're punch drunk and stupid from it. I love employer branding because it serves me, the candidate, not me as the employer brand person, as the candidate, which means every candidate should love this. This is why employer branding is so important and so useful and so valuable. In less than 20 years, the world's been upended. Technology, which you know, started to mean that everything was a little faster, a little easier, yada, yada, has beget huge changes across every element of a business. The current wave of tools allows us to sleep in strangers' homes, drive in strangers' cars, invite strangers into our own home to build our furniture for us. It lets us work from wherever we want. Bear in mind, I wrote this before COVID. Technology isn't just the supercomputer in our pocket. It's the means, and this is important, of commodifying trust, trust as a, as a, as a service, trust as a product. I can now rate my Uber driver. And because of that, and other people rate the Uber driver. And because the Uber driver cares about their rating, I can trust putting one day my daughter when I can, she's seven, I'm not doing anytime soon. I can put her in a cab and let her go to wherever to go someplace and know that she's going to get there safe. That's a stranger in a car. I can trust because the op, the app, the, the system commodifies trust. I can rent an Airbnb in the middle of nowhere and sleep fairly comfortably knowing that, yeah, it's a stranger's home, but I'm probably pretty sure there's not a mass murderer hiding in the closet. I'm probably pretty sure they haven't slipped a key to someone to kill me, right? Probably not. Because if I did, if they did, that would be a bad review. That's a joke. Um, but that's, it's, that's how we commodify trust. It means communities being on call 24-7. It means on-demand entertainment of every variety. It means we're able to put our kids to bed a continent away, right? It sounds like an AT&T commercial, I know, but that's what all that technology has allowed us to do. 
But much of that change has also changed us in an ever-evolving set of options, right? We have grown to expect near-infinite choices in every industry, every space, every place. We, we, we expect it, and frankly, I think a lot of times we demand it. Think back to the last time you got your driver's license or your passport renewed and you saw all the ways the technology could change or even obviate your need to stand in an endless line and have your picture taken and answer questions that those answers already exist somewhere in some database, right? You had that process and you went, there's got to be a better way. Why? Because you've seen it done better in a million different places. You can order your groceries online and have them show up to your door two hours later. That is magic. And that's the magic world we live in. But the ability to make those kinds of choices assumes that we have enough information necessary to make that choice. And I am a huge proponent of informed choice. I don't want to jump to a job I don't know anything about, but if I'm in, you know, in a pinch, I'll take the job, which sucks and no one wants that. I want information so I can know what I'm getting into. This is our life. It's not to be determined by some flip of a coin. It's important stuff. We think of, hey, we're, we're recruiting, we're employer branding, we're just trying to promote these jobs. We're not doing that. We're helping change people's lives. And, and every great recruiter I've ever met knows in their beating heart that what they do is so important, they have to take this seriously. They, they are changing people's lives, almost always for the better, but to get people to understand that takes a lot of work. This is a time in which you can know exactly where your coffee bean was grown. You have a rating on a seller from Amazon and Etsy. You can do a complete house tour and see all the tax records of a house that you're thinking about buying before you ever step foot in it or call a real estate agent. So if all that stuff is true, why would anyone expect us, the people who expect choice and information on which to base that choice, to put our collective heads in the sand when it comes to our next job? That place you're gonna spend eight to 10, 12 hours a day five, six, seven days a week, right? Where you're gonna spend all your time. That makes no sense. If I can know the name of the farmer who grew all the cacao beans for a chocolate bar that I'm about to eat, if I can know how many trips my Uber driver has made and what their rating is before I step into the car, why can't I know about the company I may be thinking about working for? It makes no sense. You know, and some people will say, oh, you know, hey, um, well, you know, what companies reveal stuff, bigger companies have here's, 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 you know, if they're public, especially, they have to reveal all this information. No, they have to reveal some financial information. They have to reveal or encourage to reveal some broader strategic information about where the business is going. But I've yet to see an S1 filing that talks deeply and meaningfully about a company's culture, that talks meaningfully about why the job I'm applying for is going to help them with that strategy. So let's not pretend that the information, you know, the self-serving, spin-tastic information that every company's marketing and comms and investor relations teams generate about themselves to present themselves in a perfect light. Let's not pretend that's useful information. And by the way, I know plenty of employer brands who could fit into that category right now. And I don't want to be in that category. I Yes, we want to present it the best possible light, but we also want it to be an authentic light. We want to reveal the negatives and the positives. That's just, that's just how I see this thing. If you're going to be all perfect, all clean, all nice, all pretty all the time, you are a spin doctor. If you're telling an interesting story, one with positives and negatives, you get to play my little game. Everyone knows, right, that even though those people, the spintastic things that they're talking about, even though those are facts, 
they're almost never the whole story. Those are people paid to present a self-serving narrative. And I guess, yes, employer branders can say that that thing is true too. I say you got to reject that. No one's angry at the idea that there's a lot of spintastic information out there, but no one believes the marketing team is providing anything like the whole truth. No one really, children realize that. Seth Godin's joke is, uh, sea monkeys are great because it finally, it, it's the thing that shatters most children's sense of what marketing means because it's mostly lies, right? You are sold this idea that it's sea monkeys and they play and they're in a, it's amazing. And then you get them in their brine shrimp. You're like, wait a second. I was lied to. Yes. Welcome to marketing. Not all marketing, but this is a world in which that was considered appropriate marketing. So yeah, <laughs> adjust your curves accordingly. You know, if you understood cars purely from commercials, you'd think that every car is the best in class, that every car is stocked to the gills with technology to make you safer than you might be, I don't know, in your own home. It'll make you feel great. It'll keep the kids happy. It isn't as expensive as you think, right? Oh, it's wonderful. It's perfect. It's amazing. And that's why we don't read reviews before we buy cars. Oh, wait, hold on. The marketing information is great at getting attention, but it's not what you'd call enough information to make a decision. When you buy a car, you read reviews, you talk to friends, you talk to family, you kick the tires, you look around, you take your time. Maybe you go look at a different car lot just to kind of get some sense of perspective. Marketing tells a truth. Marketing never tells the truth. That's a really critical definition. It doesn't matter what the ratings of the drivers are. You can't choose between Uber or Lyft to get the airport unless you know what the costs are going to be. It doesn't matter how pretty the space is on the Airbnb. You can't choose between your options unless you know where it is on the map. Companies who work really, really hard to stifle or limit the amount of information, the kind of information going about them, who manage their reputation like a show pony, they're not going to succeed like the ones who are willing to open up. That's what A and B grade talent wants, to make a choice based on relevant and useful data, all of it that's relevant and useful on hand. If you're choosing between two Airbnbs, yeah, you're looking at two pictures, but part of that information is knowing where that Airbnb is. Is it close to the place you want to be or is it way out in the sticks? You're making a choice. If you just choose based on the pictures, you're not really making a choice. You don't have enough information. And that's why Airbnb listings, and to be fair, every house listing has metric tonnage of data about what these things offer, where it is, what's the location, what's the situation. They want you to make it a good, informed choice so that you feel comfortable when you show up. Why? Because when you do and, they, and, you ha- and they've properly set expectations and you show up and you've met those expectations, that buyer, that renter, whatever, gives you a good review. That's what the game is for them. Meanwhile, on our world, companies are pretending they can hide. They can pretend they can manage that information. They can pretend they can only push out good reviews. They can really kind of shine like a diamond, right? But they can't hide. When a candidate wants that information, it's already out there, right? All the bad news is already out there. Already out there. It's not just on you know the review sites, but it's on Google. It's in the minds of the people we know via LinkedIn. It's the people we know via friends and family. It's out there. It just requires a lot of digging. And when you make me dig, and when you make me work for it, I'm a little testy about it. You can give it to me, knowing I'm going to find it, and say, "Hey, we're." This big company trying to go to Mars, not saying any name brands, 
These are all the good things about it. But by the way, you should know we're going to work you really hard. That is a stronger employer brand in my book than the one that says, we're great. Now, some companies are pretty good about letting, letting that information out there, letting that information get out to the world. And they do so up until a very specific point. And that point is salary. Should companies be making salary ranges for the role available to a job shopper? Well, that's complicated, as many, many, many people have said. And here's my take. Yeah, I know the concern is it leads to talent jumping ship every time they see a different salary that's a little higher. If the goal is to attract talent by giving them the ability to form a more complete and complete picture of what working for them might mean, open salary ranges can mean price wars. It can mean bidding. And I'm going to tell you right now, while companies hate that, I'm not against it. I'll say I am just enough of a capitalist to say that seems fair. That seems like pretty solid, I don't know, microeconomics supply and demand stuff to me. Like that's first semester stuff, right? You want something more, you should be willing to pay more for it. Does that effectively lead to an end of everything employer brand thinking was supposed to manifest? Eh, I don't think so. So those questions are valid. If we assume that everybody just wants to work to maximize their paycheck, but if everybody were there to maximize their paycheck, if that were true, uh, wouldn't we all just run hedge funds? I mean, isn't that where the money is? No one, no one teaches for the money. <laughs> <laughs> no one joins the army for the money. No one, I mean, there's plenty of jobs where you go, no one picks that job for the money. No way, the, the ceiling is nowhere near what you could make in a hedge fund, what you could make in finance. Simple as that. It's far more common for people to seek to maximize their lives in the broadest possible context. And that means making sure that the choice we make lets us feel fulfilled both professionally and personally, in whatever way we measure those objectives, we as individuals measure that. If I measure my objective and how much good I'm putting out in the world, working at a nonprofit saving whales may be a better choice than working at an oil company not saving whales, he says fairly unbluntly, um, regardless of what the salary is. That I'm just saying, it's not that the salary doesn't matter. It's that there's a larger consideration set. People look at the bigger picture. Think of it this way. Assuming you got paid something fair, and I think that's a very good and important kind of asterisk to add to this. Everybody feels like they should be paid fairly. And, you know, call it the median for the industry and location, right? Would you rather take a job that let you go home at five o'clock every day or one that paid you 10% more? Would you rather take a job that invested in your development and growth, like for tuition reimbursement or professional certifications or a professional development budget, right? Or the one where you got a 10% higher salary? Would you rather work at the company that surrounded you with a great and supportive team or one where you made 10% more salary? You, what about a shorter commute? What about work remote work? What about a company with amazing maternity, paternity and parenting benefits? These aren't abstract questions. I recently worked, he says, not naming names, for companies that didn't offer you a lot of this work-life balance, didn't offer you a lot of, I don't know, perks and tuition reimbursement or growth opportunities that, you know, paid because they gave you more salary. Their stated policy was, if you want those perks, we pay you, pay for them. That was a choice. That was a stated, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm simply saying, coming into that, I should know that. That's how I make a choice. 
So yeah, some people pick a job solely on the basis of maximizing the salary, but it's a small percentage. And those people were always motivated by money anyway. They were always fed by that. And so that means nothing you were going to do unless you were always going to show up with a stack of cash and say, here, here, here. They were always going to take off eventually. People who give up a short commute and a supportive team for a 10% raise were always going to demand the high end of the scale, push for raises, push for promotions faster than you're scheduled, no matter what job it was. It's not about you. It's about the candidates. That's who they are. They're always going to demand the most possible money. They're the ones on blind complaining that somebody else made four cents more than they did. So even if they were talented, they were, were they ever really going to choose you? Because if they choose you, they would have stuck around just long enough to learn they could make some like 10 cents more someplace else. What's the premium you'd have to pay talent in order to get them to work at a job that they will hate? That's a pretty high premium. And to be fair, it's a very few number of people who would actually take that deal. So when I say that salary doesn't matter, I don't mean that salaries don't matter. What I mean is that salary is part of a larger equation, the stuff that does matter. I'm going to make a choice. If you said the choice is one extra hour a week or a day of extra work, and it comes with a 50% salary bump, that is an interesting choice. If you say, I'm only going to have to work seven and a half hours a day, but I'm going to make bare minimum, that's a choice. Those are complete ideas. If I look at just one aspect at a time, I can't choose. I'm trying to choose between Airbnbs without knowing where they are. I'm just looking at the pictures or just looking at where they are. You need both pieces of information to make a decision. It's all about transparency, right? The more information, the more transparency you offer, the more credible you become as an employer. And that means the more willing someone is to consider what you have to offer, what your brand promise is as they make that choice. If you don't give that piece of information, you're showing partial information and everybody knows it. But their level of choice is determined by their level of talent. And that's important. If someone is amazing at something that you as a company want, there will be lots of choices. And lots of choices means lots of opportunities to hear from lots of different places and lots of different salaries and lots of different offerings and lots of different value creations, right? If they're a commodity level C grade player, there's a lot less choice. So the incentive to bring someone amazing is the way you do it is to give, understand that they have more choices and offer a complete choice. If my choice is between an Airbnb where I know the location, it's not exactly right, and I see the pictures, and they're nice, but not like amazing, and the price seems reasonable, versus one where the price is really, really low, and I don't have the other information, that's really not much of a choice. I'm going with the first option because there's a lot more, and I know. I can kind of prepare for it. Talent has choices, which means it's not an A or B choice. It's actually A to Z choice. It's actually A to Z, Z, Z choice. There's a lot of choices. But talent can't take advantage of those choices if employers don't provide enough credible information on which that choice is based. And as someone with choices, they will choose one of the many other competitors who know what they offer, what they stand for, and can prove it day after day after day. This is why your candidates are begging for you to get your employer brand, get it right, get it serious. They want to know before they make the choice. They want the information. They need to know what the salary range is. They want to know what it looks like. They want to know what it feels like. They want to know where it's located. They want to know all that stuff that you've got on your website, but then 10 times more. 
And you as the employer brand person are the person who says, don't go, it's like you're a concierge. You're not, you're not saying, don't go searching for it here. I put it all together. I'm showing how these two things are connected, this salary and this offering, how they interact, how they're connected. This is what we offer. This is our brand value proposition. This is what we propose. That's what it's about. And that's where you succeed by creating that kind of information set for a candidate so that they can make a proper choice. Even if they say no, that's a good thing because they didn't want you offered. They didn't say no because they didn't know. They didn't, they said no because they didn't want it. And that's fine because while it kind of feels painful to offer them these things and they say no, it's better than them saying yes. And then leaving three to six months later when they go, oh, I don't really want this. That's what we're trying to avoid. That's where the employer brand really kind of adds value to a company. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week where we're going to talk about relationships and narratives. I know these are fun words. I can't wait to get to them either. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for recruitmentmarketing.com for sponsoring the whole this season. Go sign up for the newsletter at employerbrand.news and I will see you next week. Bye. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.